The Bi-Urban Yogi, Episode 18, featuring Whit Hornsberger. My practice, a daily ritual of reversing the tendency of the mind, developing the capability of witnessing what's arising. This practice feeds an insatiable curiosity into what or exactly who I am. I practice to heal old injuries of body, mind, and heart. My practice keeps the body strong and healthy, the mind calm and serene. Gradually, the knots of habitual conditioning undo themselves, freeing me from the past, inhabiting the suchness of this present moment. Join yogi and musician Will Blunderfield as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative wellness practitioners, musicians, and yoga masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Hi yogis, Will here. Welcome to another episode of the Bi Urban Yogi. I was so grateful to get to sit down with my meditation instructor, Whit Hornsberger, I had just gotten back from a retreat on Demon Island with him. Witt Hornsberger is a student and teacher of the wisdom traditions of classical yoga and Theravada Buddhism. A former athlete, Witt found the path as a result of a career-ending knee injury and the subsequent emotional and mental suffering inherent in losing one's supposed self-identity and self-worth. His daily practice and teaching methods stem from the traditional practices of Vinyasa Krama, Krishnamacharya, and Buddhist meditation, Mahasi Saida. A passionate advocate of traditional teachings, Witt expounds the ancient wisdom of these lineages in a relevant manner, making them readily available and accessible to students at every stage of the path. A passionate lover of surf, travel, and nature, Witt teaches internationally, offering classes, workshops, retreats, and trainings. You can see his full schedule at withhornsberger.com. I hope you enjoy my interview with Witt today. So, meditation. Why is it so in right now? Hmm. I think um, that meditation is is becoming so popular because people are recognizing that um, the pace at which culture is evolving mm-hmm. is a little bit um, out of control. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I think, too, that, you know, the evolution of culture, people are starting to wake up that it's maybe not fulfilling our deepest mm-hmm. needs. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I was at the spa, actually, up in Whistler yesterday. Scandinav. Scandinav. And I was just, you know amazed by how many people were there Mm -hmm. all for the purpose of relaxation you know Mm -hmm. of finding that still point so um you know i think also too meditation is no longer this esoteric eastern thing Mm -hmm. um in the west it's a very common practice and it's Mm -hmm. very widely accepted now um in in many different scenarios so yeah i think uh i think we all just are looking to slow down a bit Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you teach Buddhist meditation, like Vipassana, Metta, and this specific style of Vipassana, when I was on your retreat, where you labeled the sensations and the thought patternings, and uh, when did you first come across that specific style, and why has it stuck with you? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, the style of Vipassana that I practice and teach, um, referred to as the Mahasi method um, from the Burmese 
teacher, uh, Mahasi Saida, I came across that very early in my um, experience with uh, meditation and it just really resonated right off the bat. Mm -hmm. um, I just found it a very direct way of, of dropping into uh, witness consciousness and mm -hmm. the ability, um, you know, like all mindfulness practices to create that space between right. um, and to be able to observe whatever's arising within our internal environment and, and as well our external environment without having to get involved. I liked how you said it's like duck hunt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's so good. Yeah, you know, so, you know, with this Mahasi method, that's exactly it. Um, you know, the purpose of it is to, is to just use a, a mental label um, to allow the mind to detach from adding on and conceptualizing about that thought or that feeling or that sensation. Is it so you're less apt to get into stories? Exactly, I think so, yeah. Um, so as opposed to, you know, a thought arises or a sensation arises um, within our experience and the mind latches onto it and begins to add onto it and, and finish the storyline or create a storyline um, in reference to our past conditioning, mm -hmm. um, this kind of like duck hunt approach of, mm -hmm. of picking off these um, psychophysical experiences with a, a mental label allows us now to just step back um, and rest in the refuge of awareness and, and observe how does that sensation behave, how does that mm -hmm. thought um, exhibit itself when we're not adding to it. Right. Um, so, yeah. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. How often do you meditate personally? Um, I, I, I would say daily, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I think I'm innately type A, um, and Meaning. very driven, mm -hmm. um, and, and I think it's been really beneficial in my practice, um, both yoga and meditation, um, to develop habit patterns, um, but at this point in my, in my practice, um, you know, if things arise as, as they do, life happens, and I don't get a sit in the morning, um, you know, I think that's the beauty about Vipassana. It's, it's a living, breathing practice that's applicable when you walk down the street mm -hmm. or when you sit on your cushions. So, you know, I think, uh, yeah, yesterday I didn't get a morning sit-in um, here in Vancouver, and, and that's okay. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I know that I can practice throughout the day. Um, it's not something that is outside of my life. Right. Um, but by and large, um, it is a daily thing, um, and it's become such a habit pattern in my mind and body that um, I no longer have to motivate myself or, mm. or you know, pull myself out of bed. It's just, um, it's just such a gift and an innate nice. part of my my human experience now that it, it, it is more or less a daily practice. Nice so, man. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that you're going to be teaching in Europe at a peace conference or seminar? Yeah. Um, and there's going to be. Um, meditation teachers such as yourself mm -hmm. and then you're saying science science sort of scientists who study the brain what do you know about um, the effect of meditation on the brain yeah so I'm uh, I've been invited uh, I'm humbled to have been invited to um, teach at uh, the third annual inner peace conference in Amsterdam in early October um, and this is a gathering um, of uh, teachers um, and individuals from uh, many different demographics um, that relate to inner peace from neuroscientists to meditation teachers, yoga teachers, um, philosophers, writers, monastics. Nice. Um, and with regard to, you know, the science of meditation, um, 
I don't study as much um, neuroscience as I probably would like to. Um, there's a wonderful book called The Buddha's Brain, which I have, and um, it kind of lays out the foundation of, of Buddhist meditation and, and what's going on in, in the brain itself from a um, neuroscientific perspective. Um, but and, and I've read it many times, but I think I, I've kind of, not even consciously, kind of taken a step back and, and, and been focusing more on my own experience mm-hmm. of um, what's going on as opposed to maybe what I'm reading in books. Cool. Um, but one thing I do know um, uh, that, you know, always comes to me is, um, you know, neuroscience has found that through meditation, um, we build up gray matter in the insular cortex of the mm-hmm. brain. And it's said that that area of the brain is... Um, related to empathy and compassion and and, and makes sense. The is that like inside, like in the sides, or is that more like the frontal lobe? Kind of gray matter is everywhere, I suppose, well, around I the side. No idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's somewhere in there. I just love gray matter. Yeah. Like it's really crunch it's really spongy. Exactly. I just love I'm just going on what they're telling me. Right, 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 right. But you know, through my own ex- experience, you know, this gray matter in the insular cortex related to, to empathy, mm. you know, it, it's, it makes a lot of sense. The more we watch our own mind, mm-hmm. eventually, because c- there can be periods of, you know, self-judgment and, and disappointment and aversion, um, but as the, the mind and the, or the heart mind becomes more equanimous, mm. um, in watching how the mind behaves, without judgment, we begin to develop empathy for ourselves um, mm. and acceptance for um, you know, this embodiment. And as a result, we can't help but become more empathetic to those yes. around us. Um, so you know, there's a lot going on um, in, the, in the brain um, with regards to neuroscience, but that's kind of the one that, you know, for me, that's that makes enough sense. right now. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. All and about then, love. All, it's all about love. And then uh, I was at uh, Yoga West uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, Guru Singh, one of our teachers there, was one of the senior teachers, was up uh, giving a lecture in a little mini class, and he was talking about how there's like three brains, one in the skull, and then one in the heart, and one in the gut. Mm-hmm. And um, and then you, you were just talking about stre- the strengthening or getting more into the heart center, and how that can make you more compassionate towards what's going on in the in the head brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you speak more to that on, on how to root oneself in the heart more? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, you know, I find it really fascinating in, in the Buddhist traditions. It's often referred to as the heart mind. Mm. Um, I even heard that in that stream of belief that the true mind is centralized in the heart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or like the, the mind is centralized in that heart chakra. Yeah, That's yeah. just the, the locus of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know... If, I'm rather ignorant uh, of this, but you know, from what I've read, um, you know, the yoga tradition um, believes that the the heart is um, the seat of the soul. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so we've got this incredibly powerful mind, um, and what a what a beautiful instrument. But it it, it seems to me that you know that awareness, um, that that equanimous awareness um, that we develop in meditation is coming more from like a a heart-centered place, whether that's right in the center of the chest or it's embodied throughout my experience. Right. Um, But yeah, in in terms of falling into that heart, um, again, I think it comes back to what we were just talking about with with the insular cortex. Um, How do you deal with... um, Like Sometimes I I still get triggered when I know, for example, that there's like homophobes out there who mm -hmm. want me not to be in my heart. Mm -hmm. Rather me like... 
mm-hmm. self-abuse. And then when I know that um, there are forces out there who want me to be more in my head and not in my heart, it's almost like I allow that knowingness to pull me out of my heart. Do you have any techniques to like be compassionate towards those people who are so small-minded so that you can stay in the compassionate zone? Mm-hmm. Not like get rageful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and again, I think it comes back to the more we watch ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, even though we might not engage in, in belittling behaviors as such, um, we still begin to see that um, there are aspects of our own minds that um, we might not readily admit to, mm-hmm. to others. And, um, and I think that empathy and that, that self-love and compassion... Um, develops the empathy for others including those who um, are projecting things like that upon us Um, and you know we were talking about this just a few moments ago at coffee you know everyone's doing the best they can at the level of consciousness with which they're at in any given Mm. moment Um, Mm. and I personally don't believe that anyone is inherently a bad person Mm -hmm. as a result of causes and conditions in this life and you know perhaps in previous lifetimes, this is what's arising for them. Um, Mm. You know, and when we recognize that when people hurt us or say hurtful things, it's coming from their own pain. It's their own Mm. suffering. Mm -hmm. Has very little, if if perhaps nothing to do with us. So Um, somebody comes up to you and says something that mm -hmm. triggers you. In that moment, what do you do to stay fiercely gentle Mm -hmm. in your heart? Um... You know, I don't know if I have a, a conscious technique that I, I would use in the moment. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that it's over years of practice, the heart-mind becomes conditioned to be able to rest in a state of equanimity regardless of, of what mm-hmm. people are saying to us, whether they're belittling us mm-hmm. or whether they're pumping our tire. Mm-hmm. And that's really what Vipassana is all about, as mm-hmm. you know from retreat, is seen through these preferences of the mind. And, you know, if that's someone's opinion about me, if, if they say hurtful things that's okay. Mm-hmm. If I can note it mm-hmm. and create that space between stimulus and reaction, now I have an opportunity to choose my response. And my response is to remain centered in my heart and, and, mm. and not react to the reaction. Right. Um, so I think it's, I think it's difficult to, to consciously do, do that in the moment because mm. things are happening so fast in the mind. Mm. And so that's why we call it practice. You know, right. we spend those hours on the cushion or on the mat, not to live on the cushion and on the mat. But so when we go out into the world, we're, we're more prepared for what might be thrown at us because we never know what's coming. Right. Does that make sense? That does make sense. So it's, uh, <clears throat> it's kind of like working out in a way. It's working out your ability to exercise your compassion muscle. For sure. Yeah. Think about, you know, I reference athletics a lot um, from my background. Mm. You know, an athlete who is training um, in agility, plyometric speed, um, they're practicing that. When they go out into a game-like situation or competition, they're not consciously thinking about those movements that they've been working on in practice. It's a spur-of-the-moment muscle memory reaction to what's taking place. And so, too, through our meditation practice, when we go out into the world, which is kind of like the game, Right. You know, we step out onto the, the, the playing field and we don't know what's coming, just like on, on a football field or a soccer pitch. Mm-hmm. And instead of having to, like an athlete, you can imagine an athlete, if they were 
if they had to stop and consciously retrieve what they'd been training their body to do, they're not going to be a very successful athlete. Right. And so in the moment, the mind can make its way to that place where we don't have to consciously think, okay, this is happening, I've got to find my heart. Right. But that actually becomes second nature. the foundation of our mm. heart. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. And that takes time, you know, and it takes patience. You know, yeah. As the Buddha said, patient endurance is the supreme practice for freeing the heart from unwholesome states. Nice. And so that includes, you know, when things happen like that and, and someone may say something to us, we might react. I still react all the time. I mean, all day long. The difference is I can now see that yeah. and let it go and not add a reaction to the reaction and then a reaction to the reaction to the reaction. Right. You know, can stop the pattern. Exactly. These arrows stop that the, the Buddha talked about. Right. We'll get, sh- we'll get shot by an arrow. Yeah. The first arrow will hit us. Broken heart. Someone says something mean to us. We lose our job. Whatever it may be, there's going to be first arrows when we're born into a human body, as the Buddha taught. Mm-hmm. But it's the second arrow that the mind shoots at itself. That's mm. the reaction, you know? And, and you heard me use this quote on, on retreat you know, from Viktor Frankl, mm. um, Holocaust survivor, and uh, the famous book, Man's Search for Meaning. Between stimulus and reaction, there's a space. And within that space lies our power to choose our response. And within our response lies our growth and our freedom. Mm. And that's what, you know, Vipassana, that's what medit- mindfulness is really all about. The yeah. ability to step back and rest in the refuge of witness consciousness and choose how we engage with the, with the situation. But it takes time. You were talking about <clears throat> metta mm-hmm. and how some t- that is a prerequisite to Vipassana. Mm-hmm. So just for the listeners to reify Vipassana is where you're labeling your thoughts, your primary object can be either the tip of the nose, the heart, or the belly, labeling it rising, rising, mm-hmm. falling, falling, and then you get a secondary object like a thought or you, get a, you hear a sound, label it hearing, hearing. So that's Vipassana. Mm-hmm. Metta is loving kindness towards yourself. Mm-hmm. And then I heard you could also do it towards somebody who triggers you, somebody who you're kind of neutral towards, like the cashier at Capers, mm-hmm. uh, and then somebody who you, you really love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think you're ready to teach this stuff. You sound <laughs> like you got it down. Um, well done. Um, yeah, Vipassana is, um, you know, become very, very popular, and it, it, it's of huge benefit. But, um, you know, there are some some preliminary practices that are um, very beneficial to engage with um, before one moves into Vipassana, mm-hmm. um, and, and one of those is metta. Um, so in the Buddhist tradition, there, there's kind of two types of meditation. One is referred to as samatha, mm-hmm. calm-abiding meditation or tranquility meditation, and that's mm-hmm. where we're working ba- with one object. Nice. Whereas Vipassana is working with a potential infinite number of objects. Anything we experience through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, the mm-hmm. six sense doors in Buddhist psychology is a potential object for meditation. Mm. So Samatha practice um, is very popular. The yo- classical yoga tradition is a Samatha uh, tradition or shamatha in Sanskrit. Where you're just focusing on the navel one, point. One, exactly. Or any or singular object. Cool. Um, as potentially taught, it mm-hmm. could be an image of, of the divine. Okay. Um, it A could candle. be the breath. Candle. Exactly. I see. And when the mind wanders from it, we simply come back to it. So it's, it's developing deep states of concentration. Now, which is very helpful for Vipassana when we begin to introduce sights, sounds, smells, tastes, sensations, and thoughts. Mm-hmm. Now, metta is considered loving-kindness meditation, um, considered a form of samatha practice or shamatha practice. Um, so it too can be used as that singular object um, to develop a foundation of calm abiding and concentration. 
um, the added benefit of meta practice as as a samatha-like practice is instead of just developing concentration maybe on an object, uh, maybe an inanimate object, we're developing the calm mind through the repetition of phrases of loving kindness. Mm. So we're also opening the heart a lot. Mm. Um, and so typically the meta practice um, is considered a prerequisite for vipassana because it helps to clean up some of the um, the toxins within the mind, like mm. like anger and hatred, um, perhaps towards ourselves and towards others as well. So it usually begins, um, traditionally begins, where we would send meta towards ourselves, phrases such as, may I be filled with loving kindness, may I be free from fear and doubt, may I be well in body and mind, may I be mm. peaceful and at ease. So you can kind of make up your own. Exactly. May I be healthy exactly. and strong, exactly. may I be happy, exactly. may I be filled with ease. Yeah. And what I just recited are the ones, um, the phrases that I'm currently working with in my daily practice. Nice. But they change all the time. Can you say it one more time? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, may I be filled with loving kindness. May I be free from fear and doubt. May I be well in body and mind. And may I be peaceful and at ease. That's and nice. those phrases change depending on what I'm going through in my life. Um, and, and so I, I always encourage students to, you know, see what resonates with them and what phrases come up. And if you start to like, say you get, like you're doing this process and then mm -hmm. you get like really angry, mm -hmm. do you sit there like because I've heard certain styles where you just sit like a monk and you let your body feel it and you sweat, mm -hmm. and, uh, you feel it. Mm -hmm. And then I've heard of other schools where you um, you get a pillow and you just start to fucking hit the pillow, or you take your hands and you're like, ah! mm -hmm. or you you know allow yourself to just like have this this meltdown. Mm -hmm. um, what? And then I've heard recently. Uh, this is just from a mindfulness course I took. They said actually that has recently been shown in studies to maybe not be as effective as just sitting with it. Yeah. What do you say about all that? Yeah, I've heard the same thing. And personally, I don't have experience with hitting, hitting the pillow. The pillow. Um, but It'd be so cute to watch you hit the pillow. Just throw a tantrum. Oh, it's been a while since I've had a tantrum, but maybe it's time. Um, yeah, you know, meta basically, the meta practice is training the heart to not dwell in aversion. Mm. So... When we experience anger, can we have meta for the anger? Mm. Can we have meta for the fear? Can mm. we have meta for the self-judgment? So as opposed to anger arises and then the mind conditioned to go after what it likes and push away what it doesn't like, then pushes away anger. Now we've added the second arrow. Here's anger, the first arrow. Mm -hmm. Now we're shooting a second arrow at ourselves through aversion. And what we resist, resist persists, right. in my experience at least. Me too. So if I push away anger, maybe I can get it to go away for like a second, yeah. <laughs> but then it comes back even stronger. So meta is really developing the heart so it doesn't dwell in aversion. Mm. So whether um, it's, you know, flowers and rainbows arising or, you know, tornadoes and thunderclouds within, within, um, within the mind space, the mind rests equanimously in the middle. And that's, right. you know, that's the middle path of the Buddha. You know, not taking sides for and against. Okay, here's anger. I'm going to sit with anger. You know, as the Buddha taught, can we invite anger to sit down and have tea with us? I love that. As opposed to, get away from me. I, I got to run from this. So, right. so that's, that's what metta is. And to, to answer your, your previous question, it starts with the self. We mm -hmm. develop love for ourselves. And then we begin to move outwards. And traditionally, we would then move towards someone, a loved one, mm -hmm. um, which is going to be also relatively easy, sometimes easier than sending meta towards ourselves. 
because often it's difficult, especially in our, our culture where we've been conditioned that we're never good enough. Um, it can, for a lot of people, including myself, when I first started with Meta, it feels really phony. And, um, you know, the, the instructions I received from my first Buddhist teacher was, you know, fake it till you make it. Hmm. And eventually the heart opens and we send that Meta towards ourselves. Then when to you're a doing Meta, do you, do you mm -hmm. focus on your heart and, and sort of bring energy to it as you're repeating the words in your mind? Um, that's a great question. I don't know if I consciously do. Um, I, I would imagine that that would be a very beneficial thing okay. to do in your practice. Um, I, I feel that in my own practice now over years of doing it, I think it's kind of a natural abiding um, in, in, in the heart center. And in a way, you know, coming back to what we were talking about before, I almost feel that the heart center is everywhere within my body, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can find refuge in the sole of my foot and the right. same love in the sole of my foot that I can in my heart, you know. So right. the way we define, like, this is where the, the, the mind is and this is where, you know, consciousness is, well, consciousness is everywhere and love is everywhere. Right. But I think, I think that would be a very beneficial... Um, For people who maybe are always in their brains. Absolutely. Like, focus on your big toe or focus on your heart. Just focus anywhere other than your freaking exactly. skull. For sure. Maybe. Or unless you're, like, focusing at your third eye and working to open the pituitary, maybe. And it depends, you know, what resonates with the practitioner. But mm -hmm. thinking about what you said, the heart, you know, I, my hand came to my heart. I, I would well imagine that, you know, placing a hand over the heart center and focusing on that meta would be very, very beneficial. So I'm going to steal that from you and Yay. use that. It's from um, Kundalini. Oh, cool. There's a cool. meditation called Meditation for a Calm Heart where oh, you nice. bring your left hand to your heart and then you bring your thumb and index finger together, kind of like you're making a pledge. Mm -hmm. And then you inhale deeply, mm -hmm. suspend your breath, mm -hmm. exhale, suspend it out three to 11 minutes or longer if you're wanting. Beautiful. I was at the retreat center and on the last day, this dude who was volunteering there, I guess he was a Buddhist monk. He was like, he's like, you're wearing all white. Are you a Kundalini yoga? And I was like, I just finished the training. And he's like, he's like, Kundalini yoga. We had the people there. They're great. They're so blissful, but it's completely different. It doesn't coalesce with, with what we're doing here at all. Mm -hmm. And I said, I thought, mm. I don't know if that's true. And I, I reached out to Lama Rodney because I was kind of having this existential sort of feeling of like, I really love the Buddhist practice. Mm -hmm. And it's, it is quite a lot different than the, act, the active sort of yang-like energy of Kundalini. Um, but then I was thinking, you know, like, I don't actually know if we have a monkey mind. You always hear, oh, calm your monkey mind. Maybe we have a monkey body. Mm. And if we do basketball or go mm -hmm. surfing or do an intense Kundalini Kriya, Maybe that helps our monkey body relax a bit so that we can sit for longer in a, in a place of meta more mm -hmm. easily. Mm -hmm. So maybe they can coalesce. 100%, dude. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, there are many different paths mm -hmm. to the heart. And I don't think one needs to, and I don't necessarily think it's beneficial to isolate oneself with, mm -hmm. with one practice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, take all the roads to mm. get there, you know, find what resonates with you because, of, you know, sometimes they are conflicting mm -hmm. and we can become confused, but um, no, I mean, I think I, I, from any spiritual to religious tradition, I mean, what is the, the basis of it? It's about opening the heart mm. um, and, and developing more of an altruistic approach to, to, to life and to each other. Mm. Um, but uh, your se second part of the question... Well, I guess just the... Um the kundalini meditations are very active. Oh, right, right, right. Whereas Buddhist yeah. meditation is more passive. Yeah. 
for example, meditation for a calm heart. If mm -hmm. you want to have a calm heart in Kundalini style, mm -hmm. you do something. You bring your hand to your heart. First, you chant Om Namo Buddha Dev Namo to honor the Reishis, which is actually what we were doing on the Buddhist retreat. Mm -hmm. We were honoring the Buddha, yeah. singing a chant. Yeah. So I thought that was cool. Mm -hmm. There is that commonality. There mm -hmm. we go. Bring your hand to your heart. Breathe into the heart chakra. So it's, it's more sort of like you're doing stuff to make something happen with mm -hmm. special movements. Whereas in the Buddhist style, it's just sit with what is and, and uh, label it as the loving witness. Yeah. And I love both. Mm -hmm. I mean, my, I'm, I'll try to answer my own question first. Mm -hmm. Maybe mindfulness Buddhist practice is like a way of life so that when you're more mindful and you're being the loving witness more often, then you know, okay, I'm going to eat the salad instead of the deep fried food. Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to, I know exactly what Kundalini Kriya is going to help me right now because I'm more mindful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Maybe that's how they feel. Ab absolutely, man. I, I think for sure. Uh, you know, I don't consider myself a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. um, I, I try not to label my, my human experience that way because at one time I did mm -hmm. um, as an athlete. And then that came crashing down and I was lost. And, you know, in hindsight, that's what got me onto this path. But, um, you know, I use practices from classical yoga tradition. I practice vinyasa yoga. Mm -hmm. And I'm ignorant of the kundalini tradition. But y your question makes me think of, you know, from a classical yoga perspective, um, we've got these three primordial energies. Um, not just our embodiment does, but um, the cosmos is imbued with these three, what are referred to as the gunas. Mm. Rajasic energy, yes. tamasic energy, and sattvic energy. In the, in the we learned about that in our kundalini, in okay, our kundalini training. Yeah. So okay, so there's some crossover. There yeah. There's so much crossover yeah. from these traditions, you know. And the monkey body. So, you know, when I was in the monastery in Burma, 40 days of silence and moving extreme, you know how slow, you know, you're so on retreat. I think slow. <laughs> It gets to the point, you know, especially for, for me, I love my athletic body. Um, you know, I've worked hard to heal injuries so I can enjoy it again. And mm -hmm. I was starting to lose my mind, you know, like mm -hmm. I just needed an outlet, an expression for that rajasic energy, that active energy. Mm. So I liken it to, you know, think about a dog. If, if, if someone has a dog that sits at home all day and you come home from work and you don't take that dog out for a run or some exercise, that dog is going to misbehave. Similarly, these bodies mm -hmm. need to express that energy. So for me personally, the life of a monastic where I'm not engaging in vinyasa yoga or going for a trail run or going surfing, my true love, mm -hmm. it doesn't work for me, at least at this age, you know, the age of my body now. Maybe when I'm 75, 80, if I'm lucky to make it there and I'm not able to be as active, then maybe that type of approach resonates more but um, I think it's really important to have an outlet for that for that rajasic energy mm. as the yogis would talk about that active energy that we're imbued with you know right mm -hmm. and we're living in society and if we're just going to be sitting on a cushion all day we're not going to have the musculature for example to be able to do what we need to do to to thrive in this culture yeah exactly and these, you know, like kundalini, going for a run, going surfing, exercising, the endorphins that are released, you know, it's mm -hmm. real, you know, like anything, it can become a problem, we can become addicted to exercise, mm -hmm. but those are healthy energies that we should experience, that make us feel confident, that make us feel healthy. I, I don't know in terms of physical health if the, the monastic Buddhist approach is healthy for the physical body, certainly for the mind, 
And I think the, the Buddhist tradition would say, you know, it, it, it's healthy for the physical body because the mind is so calm, there's no stress, so it's not creating any disease. Um, but I guess, right. in short, it's everything I, in balance. Yeah, exactly. I love being active, and what a gift it is to be born into a body that is able to be active. You know, not everyone is born into a body that. That, that can do okay. these things. So take advantage, especially while we're able, you know, because although we're able now, I might not be able tomorrow yes. or next week or in 10 years, so. What role does uh, sexuality play in spirituality? Oh. Hmm. Um, I heard that the Sanskrit word yoga could be translated into the word intimate or intimacy. Mm -hmm. I personally, um, I think sexuality is one of the most profound and, and, and deepest levels of, of spiritual connection we can make. Um, the intimacy with ourselves, our own sexuality, the intimacy with others and their sexuality, you know, we've been conditioned that that is not okay, mm. but this is inherent in us. And I think, um, again, like you just said, everything in balance, it can become a, a, an impediment to mm -hmm. our spiritual well-being. But I think when, when it's approached um, not from a place of um, egoic attachment or, mm. or neediness um, or using sexuality to, to fill a hole within ourselves, you know, once our hearts feel whole, my God, what an incredible gift to be able to connect with, with ourselves and, and others mm. um, through sexuality. So, um, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know what the Buddhist tradition says about that, if anything. Um, but for me personally, uh, I think that's the, the deepest spiritual communion that there is. Cool. Um, is relationship, the intimacy of relationship. And my goodness, no better teacher. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So. You're uh, talking about the analogy of like a dog and how, you, you know, a dog that's been cooped up at home is like not going to be the most balanced dog. And I feel like in our culture, like a lot of us kind of are like cooped up dogs mm -hmm. and we castrate our dogs. <laughs> and in a way, humans, many humans um, have been chemically castrated, whether it's through Rogaine. Remember, I, I was taking Rogaine for my mm. hair and one of the side effects, I was taking Rogaine and Propecia okay. uh, to try to regrow back um, a thinning hair spot. Mm -hmm. And like my balls started to like shrink and like I totally like was becoming impotent. And I was like, hey, mm -hmm. this is, I need to stop this. So mm -hmm. I stopped it mm -hmm. and, and I got the sensation back down there. But then I have a friend who is a lawyer and he's actually working on a class action lawsuit about Propecia because it's actually caused certain guys to completely lose all of their testosterone. Mm. In some cases, their penises have retracted back into their bodies. They've lost, you know, their entire sexuality. Mm -hmm. And in less intense ways, just through like all the pesticides we're exposed to and um, not being allowed to express ourselves sexually. Mm -hmm. for, for example, if you're gay or if you're transgender, mm -hmm. um, even women they're in many places in the world, you're, you're not really allowed to express yourself. You have to shroud yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering... Um, like when I, for example, when I took the Kundalini training, I loved it because we, we learned containment. We learned to, you know, just be sovereign. But then I was talking to my friend Amy and she was on the podcast a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about how when she goes to a, she's a tantric healer. 
when she goes to a Kundalini class as taught by Yogi Bhajan, sometimes she'll like have a full-on orgasm in the mm. class. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just, I, I can sort of feel like there's still this policing that happens of people's sexuality that is maybe not allowing us to fully feel that blissful, bountiful, beautiful energy that maybe could potentially be very healing for our bodies. Um, yeah, and I've just noticed like all these traditions, whether it's Buddhism or Kundalini, mm-hmm. there is a repression of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, spirituality-wise, I'm wondering to... I feel like maybe it's part of my mission is to carve out a healthy path to an expression of that orgasmic energy mm-hmm. in a way that can be healing and safe for people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, beautiful. I don't understand if I'm engaging in practices, spiritual practices, to to move towards being more whole. Mm. How can I do that if I reject such an innate aspect of my incarnation, Mm. my sexuality? How does that work? So this part of me is is not acceptable, and I'm doing all this work to try to awaken my heart Mm. and, and to live more fully and love more wholly, but I'm aversive to an innate aspect of myself that to me that just does not make sense so mm. sexuality I think it, it it has to be an inherent part of our spiritual practice mm. um, or we're missing the point I re- what I really away. like about you is your um, like when you see me like you give me a hug and like you're not afraid to like put your hand on me and um, you know I see often a lot of people who even in the yoga world like in the spiritual communities there is this sort of homophobia it's Mm. a subtle um systemic homophobia where like even like two you know yoga teacher dudes i'll see them hug and they have to like hit each other while they're hugging it's like Mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. have to make it you know masculine they have to make it almost a bit aggressive for it to be socially condonable right um, and you don't seem to really buy into that. You're just like embracing whether it's male, female, trans person. I'm sure you would just embrace them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, where where do you think the roots of homophobia, especially male homophobia, come from? And um, have you always been like embracing the way that you are, or is this through your Buddhist practice that you become so in your heart that you you're able to rise above that sort of homophobic undercurrent? Hmm. Amazing question. Um, you know, to to try and respond to you know, y- you know where, where and why this this condition of homophobia has arisen. Um, I'm. I don't know if I'm uh, capable of of expressing all the different dimensions in the history of our species mm-hmm. that have led to that. Um, and having said that, which is just crazy because you know our closest relatives bonobos and chimpanzees engage bisexuality bisexuality all the time as a way to increase social networking right and and so you know i'm thinking of that book sex at dawn i I haven't read read it it. yet i've been told to read it yeah Yeah. it's pretty good yeah so you know whether it's from the church or this that and the other and not just the church but just even the archetype 
of being a man and not being emotionally available and, and being strong and powerful and I can't hug you because that would make me look weak or make me look feminine. I mean, it's all conditioning. Mm-hmm. But I think underneath it all, we all have these open hearts. And I think, um, again, that's what these practices are, are, are leading us towards, you know? Mm-hmm. Be, I know your name is Will, but I know you're not Will. I know what you wear doesn't define you. I know that your sexuality doesn't define you. And I think that comes back to what we're talking about, like the insular cortex, the empathy. The, through these practices, we begin to see our interconnectedness with not only each other, but every living thing, mm. you know? And I think that's what breaks down the walls of separation. Mm. Now, having said that, has my practice um, helped with that? I think for sure, um, you know, my mom tells me that, you know, from the time I was a little boy, I was just very affectionate, very loving, and, and very open-hearted. And, you know, I, I grew up in a family um, of pure love and a grandfather um, and a father who were very uh, able to comfortably touch mm. other men without insecurity. Um, mm. So I think, uh, I think it's... Partially you had good models. Yeah, I think it's partially innate, um, but mm. I think it's it, it's also been exacerbated by these practices that have mm. opened my heart, and and I think it's extremely detrimental to our embodied well-being, um, the fear of touch, not just between man on man, mm-hmm. but even men to women or, or or whomever. We are prime. We're living in primate bodies, and as we just spoke about, I mean, aside from um, sexual behavior among bonobos and, and chimpanzees, you know, all primates, what, what do they do all day if they're not sleeping touching. or eating? They're touching. They're cleaning, looking mm-hmm. through the hair for, for mites and bugs. That's all they do is they connect through touch. And we've become so conditioned to be afraid of touching each other. It, it's, and it's obviously not helping. And I think, I hope that the future of our species is, is, is more touch, mm. you know, and and feeling safe um, when we engage in that way. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I've had people say, you know, I don't even really think about it. I'll be out eating somewhere and the server will be at the table. And, and it's, it's not even a conscious thing, but, you know, she says something or we have a laugh or whatever, and I might just reach out and touch mm-hmm. their forum. I've never talked to them before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes I'm, I, I think to myself, is, is that acceptable in 2018? But I, I just don't know any other way to engage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just so grateful for, for how these practices have opened my heart. I just, I love you and I love I love everyone. you too. Yeah. yeah I just, you're so sweet. I just love connecting with people. And, mm-hmm. and I think these practices do that. They, they allow us to see the good in, in everyone. That's um, awesome. So. Do you think that, um, like when people think about sex, they just think about, or at least I used to just think about like, bodies rubbing together and then ejaculate everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> And then, like, when I'm doing all this kundalini and tapping into more, like, my subtle body, which I feel like I'm healing from the cocaine use, mm-hmm. um, I'm like, oh, like, there's so many different l- types of love mm-hmm. and ways to connect with oneself and with another. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think one day we'll, like, evolve to, like, where sex is, like, not even a physical rubbing process? Or do you think that's yeah. possible? 
That's an amazing question. I mean, and it comes down to... I'm thinking, like, that movie Coneheads. Remember that movie Coneheads? I do remember it. There's, like, a scene where they they have sex by, like, sitting across from each other, and there's, like, a white ball in between them or something. Oh, wow. Remember that? I don't know. You know what makes comes to my mind when you, when you say that is, I mean, what do we define by sex? Is sex intercourse? Maybe. I mean... Yeah, is it penetration? Yeah. What is it? Or... And, Maybe and, we're and, having sex right now. Ex- I, to in me, a way. To me, sex is intimacy. Intimacy, And it's, yeah. it's an engagement in, in a moment where the created sense of self falls away mm. and the oneness and the interconnectedness between people arises. So does it need to be intercourse? Like definition. Does it need to be intercourse? No, but can it be? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's that's a beautiful thing to share with someone, but maybe one day our definition of what sex is will change, and sex, and intimacy, and and presence will be interchangeable words that we use. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm going to have sex with my friend at the park. Can you imagine? Yeah. You know, people are like, what? <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? You know? <laughs> oh, but maybe in, in you know maybe way. we won't be around at that time, at least in these bodies. But maybe somewhere in the future. We won't define sex as just this physical experience, but more of a, a spiritual union mm. between people, whether we're having coffee or whether we're engaging in intercourse. In physicality. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. Beautiful. Is there anything else uh, you want to talk about? Oh, man, you got me going now. Huh? <laughs> um, no, you know, I just, uh, I really appreciate what you're doing. You know, oh, I appreciate you too. On your path. Thank you. And so thank you for having me on this. And, uh, yeah, my pleasure. You know, sharing your, your heart with the world. You're a beautiful soul, man. Keep Thank doing you. your thing. You too. Yeah, dude. Thank you. Satnam. Thanks, brother. Yeah. Where can people find you online? They can find me online. Um, my website is just withornsburger.com. Nice. And then, um, I'm on Facebook and uh, Instagram, just uh, same name. Um, I don't think anyone else was was um, given that name, <laughs> so it's easy to find. I'm the only one out there. And I- <laughs> You probably got that yeah, so much. We could get into that. Yeah, for those for those who don't know, the full name is Whitney. Um, so yeah, it's a beautiful name. And it's you know. And you said it means man from the Isle of Wight. That's one of the meanings. But you're German. How did that work? Are you part um, Irish? My my, my mom's side is British. Oh, cool. Um, but you know, actually, my dad named me. There was a, a, a football player who played oh. for the Ottawa Rough Riders back in the '70s, um, I believe, or '60s '70s, named Whit Tucker. Nice. And that's how they came up with the name. Um, and yeah, I mean... I think it's a great name. It tormented me for much of my life, but I am so grateful for it because that's it like taught me so much. I remember my orthodontist was like, Hi, Mr. Blunderbot. <laughs> my mom was like, we're going elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's the beauty. You're not your name. No. You know, even, but at one time I identified with that name and right. the suffering that it caused me right. as a result of that identification. I can just go, you know, as we talked about on retreat, where's City Hall? I don't even know where it is. And yeah, it's yeah. Sunday, so it's not open. But tomorrow, if we want to go change our names, we, we can, can do totally that. Do that. We, we can switch names I, and see yeah, how I can that become is. Wit. <laughs> Day in the life of Wit. Have totally. you seen that music video, Freaky Friday, um, with Chris Brown no. and Little Dicky? No. Oh, I'll show it to you after. It's okay. so funny. Okay. I'll put the link in the thing, too. Okay, sweet. For the listeners, it's so funny. It's like they switch bodies and they experience a day in a life. Yeah. Yeah, I'll show it to you. Beautiful. Awesome. I love you. I love you too. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening in today, guys. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I enjoy speaking with Wit. He's such a lovely guy. Uh, I really recommend any of his yoga meditation courses around the world. Heading over to withornsburger.com will show you the entire complete schedule of this lovely man. Today's episode was sponsored by Domacha. 
Domacha is 100% authentic Japanese, directly from Kagoshima and Uji, Kyoto, where matcha originated and where the most premium quality matcha is produced. The supplier for Domacha is based in Kyoto and has been in the tea business for over 300 years. Domacha is the best matcha brand, supported by the famous Japanese tea master, Mr. Kazunori Handa. Whose family's knowledge and expertise has been handed down generation after generation for over 400 years. You can get domacha at most grocery stores. It's organic, it's delicious, it's so good. So good for your body, so good for your soul. We'll leave you with the song Freaky Friday by Chris Brown and Little Dicky. Hope you enjoy. Oh my God, I'm the man. I'm so fly and I can dance. There's tattoos on my neck. I just FaceTime crying. I told him I'm his biggest fan. Yeah, yeah. Got all these hoes in my DM. Yeah, do. Hold up. Holy shit, I got a kid. Oh, I can sing so well. Wonder if I can sit in work. Wait, can I really sit in work? What up, my nigga? What up, my nigga? Big ups, my nigga. We are my you pussy ass nigga, man fuck y'all niggas Cause I'm that nigga, 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 nigga I'm that nigga I woke up in Chris Brown's body So how this shit turned into Freaky Friday But we got no choice but to turn this bitch sideways I can't believe that it's Freaky Friday It's Freaky Friday I'm in Chris Brown's body I woke up and I'm Lil Dicky. Lil Dicky? Ah, what the fuck? This shit is real weak. How's Dick staying perched up on his balls like that? Walking down the street and ain't nobody know my name. Whoa. Ain't no paparazzi flashing pictures, this is great. Whoa. Ain't nobody judging cause I'm black or my controversial past. I'ma go and see a movie and relax. Whoa. Hey, I'm a blood, but I can finally wear blue. Cool. Why's his mama calling all the time? Leave me the fuck alone, bitch. Yeah. Wait, if I'm in Diggy body, breezy is who? Huh. Hope my daughter's in school. Yeah. Fuck, if I was Chris Brown, where would I be? What would I do? I woke up in Chris Brown's body. So how this shit turned into Freaky Friday. But we got no choice but to turn this bitch sideways. I can't believe that it's Freaky Friday. It's Freaky Friday. I'm in Chris Brown's body. I look at my soft dick with the light. It's my dream dick. If I was little diggy in my body, where would I? I'm trying to find myself like an introspective monk. I'm balling on the court, oh my god, I can do Snap a flick of my jump. My dick is trending on Twitter? Fuck. Now I'm at the club, I talk my way to getting in. I look up in the VIP, my goodness, there I am. I signal to him, let me in, but he won't let me in. I don't know who that is. Wait, who the fuck he think he is? Took a glass bottle, shatter it on the bouncer's head. Welcome to that motherfucker. Wait, thank you too for a sec. If you hurt me, then you only hurt yourself. But wait, I love myself. That was the key, now it's such a bad. Brown was. What the fuck again? I'm DJ.
Shit, I got a vagina. Uh, uh, I'm gonna learn. I'm gonna understand this. 